Well, good morning, everyone. I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 5. And if you're a guest with us this morning, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series right now called Blessed. Uh, and it's a study of eight statements Jesus made in his Sermon on the Mount known as the Beatitudes. Beatitude is a Latin word that means happy or blessed. So these are the happy statements or the blessed statements. And with these statements, Jesus called anyone who would follow him to a, um, to a way of life that runs contrary, not just to the norms of culture, but the norms of human nature. And as we've, we've said uh, all along, these statements uh, weren't arbitrary. They weren't they weren't just a bunch of random thoughts or pithy sayings that uh, popped into Jesus' head one day, so he blurted them out. I mean, there's a definite sequence and purpose to them. In fact, as Jesus began to teach a large crowd of people, uh, he, is en- he essentially rattled the religious status quo. Uh, and he rattled it by, by stressing how God's number one concern is not what's happening on the outside of a person, but what's happening on the inside. How, how easy it is to look, look uh, spiritual by trying to keep uh, rules and regulations, but, but you, can't, you can't fool God when it comes to the true condition of your heart. And so Jesus breaks through the religious veneer of his day, and he addresses what matters most. And he starts off saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Basically, uh, anyone who acknowledges their spiritual bankruptcy before God will find happiness, favor, and eternal life. He continued and said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And mourning describes uh, the, um, the emotional response, our emotional response to the reality of our sinful condition. He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is defined as a life devoid of arrogance. Arrogance before God, arrogance before one another. He went on, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled In other words, true happiness, Jesus says, is found not in pursuing happiness, but by pursuing God. Now, last week we noted the logical logical progression uh, to all of this and how uh, spiritual poverty leads to mourning, mourning leads to meekness, meekness stimulates an ever-increasing desire for God. Talked about how these four statements uh, have sort of a vertical orientation to them. In other words, the emphasis is on our relationship to God. Uh, but then Jesus shifts the emphasis, and his fifth statement takes on a more horizontal orientation, right? Focusing on our relationship to, to one another. Uh, he explained that if and when you come into relationship with God, who is holy, loving, gracious, and merciful, it's going to change you, man. It is going to, he's going to change you in deep, meaningful ways. And that, that deep inner spiritual transformation Uh, is eventually going to change your outward life, and especially in regard to how you view and respond to the people around you. Jesus said, look, you cannot experience the mercy of God and remain harsh toward people, remain unforgiving and callously indifferent. Anyone who receives divine mercy will be quick to extend mercy. Blessed, Jesus said, are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And that brings us to his next statement, which again uh, focuses on, on how we're to live and relate to one another. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us really that Jesus talks about the heart and its condition, because if you think back to the Old Testament, really that was God's message to his people Israel, right? Remember, God said, he said, I, the Lord, I don't, I don't look at the things people look at. Because people look at outward appearances, 
but I, the Lord, I look at the heart. That is a profound truth. It's one that I've been thinking a lot about recently and, and how it's so unfortunately true that as human beings, we get so hung up on externals and outward appearances, whereas God just you know, cuts straight to the core. And yet there are instances in life when despite our superficiality, we identify with, um, with the concern of what's happening inside of a person versus just worrying about the outside. I mean, for example, when you're dating someone, you're considering someone to marry, while externals obviously play a role in that, a wise person recognizes that the, import, the, the importance of moving beyond uh, outward appearance and, um, and trying to discover you know, what, what's really going on inside of a, of a potential spouse. You know, who are they really? Do they, do they have a passion for God? I mean, are they, are they kind? Are they faithful? Are they loyal? Is their love authentic? You know? To, uh, to choose a spouse based on externals alone is foolish. In fact, there's a new trend in New York City. I don't know if you've heard about this. I don't know if it's actually hit Chicago area. It's called paper bag dating. Uh, this is a real thing. This is a real thing. People come together for a first date to meet others with paper bags on their heads. Uh, and the experts say that with the hiding of their faces, people seem to move beyond the superficial and get to know each other on a, on a different level more quickly. Uh, why? Because what's inside matters, right? Heart matters. The same is true in business. I've got a friend who hires executives for her company, and she would tell you that how a person looks, how they present themselves, their education, their credentials are all important in the interviewing process, but the key to hiring the right person is to try and figure out what makes them tick. Are they honest? Do they like people? Are they trustworthy? Um, even in the competitive environment of, of corporate America, the heart of a person matters. It's also true in sports. I coached high school boys basketball for 12 years, and I coached here for a while, and I know I'm very close to a number of football coaches, and I can tell you this about coaches. When coaches evaluate players in any sport, they look for talent, they look for speed, they look for coordination, size, strength, all of that, but you know what else is on the top of the list? Heart. Does a player have heart? Because every coach knows through losing seasons, you can have great athletes with outstanding abilities, but if they don't have heart, man, you've got, you're going to have trouble in your season. You know, I've been hearing, a lot, of, hearing about a, lot of, a lot about the Bears' recent NFL draft picks, and everyone's talking about finding guys with heart. Why? Because heart matters. It matters in our relationships. It matters at work. It matters uh, in sports. It matters in life. With that being true, let's put a spiritual twist on it. Uh, imagine, imagine for a moment you are a god. That's not a stretch for some of us, right? Imagine you are a god. You are a deity, and you're looking for followers. What are you looking for in those followers? Are you concerned with the clothes they wear? Hairstyles or lack thereof? You know, are you, uh, uh, are you concerned about how many theological words they can pronounce correctly, how many they can define, how creatively they pray, how well they sing, what they sing? I mean, is that what you're looking for? Or are you, are you more interested in finding men, men and women who are responsive to you, who are committed to you, who have genuine faith in you? Are you looking at the condition of their hearts? And I, I think the answer to that is obvious. Here's the point. As human beings, we get so hung up on externals, yet we intuitively know it's what's inside a person that counts. And if it matters to us, 
then it only makes sense that it matters to God. And that's what Jesus is saying, you see. He's saying, he's saying, I'm not interested so much on what's on the outside as I am on what's in the inside. Blessed, he said, are the pure in heart. But what exactly does that mean? And I gotta tell you, this isn't a particularly easy verse to interpret. There are varying opinions as to what's going on here, but there are, there are textual clues that provide insight on what Jesus is talking about. One clue has to do with language. The Greek term for pure was a, was a term used in the ancient world to describe uh, the quality of precious metals like gold. You know, the term indicated that what was being described was untainted, it was clean, it was genuine, it was authentic, it was legitimate, it was the real deal. Another clue has to do with context. You know, again, in the opening four statements, Jesus' emphasis is vertical, right? Uh, and on, on our relationship to God. And then he shifts things, turns things horizontal, and focuses on our relationship to each other as human beings. And he talks about his followers being merciful toward one another. So given the context and the progression of thought, it's reasonable to conclude that the phrase pure in heart has something directly to do with the way Jesus' followers live and relate to the people around them. Another clue rests with the crowd. I mean, who was Jesus talking to? He was talking to first century Israelites, right? Jewish men and women who by and large had adopted an approach to God that was mostly about external compliance to uh, a legislated morality. You know, people felt that as long as they could keep the religious rules and rituals as best they could and stay you know, ceremonially active, that God would be pleased and their good efforts would bring about good results. But keep in mind, God looks at what? God looks at the heart. And many of the people, not all of them, but many of them in the crowd that day, Jesus spoke, were skilled at external religiosity, but had a serious heart problem. And Jesus knew that, so he calls it out. A fourth clue has to do with Jesus' contempt for hypocrisy. You know, um, Jesus spent a lot of time with people, with, with the sick, the immoral, the possessed, outcast, brokenhearted. He, he spoke with prostitutes, drunks, fishermen, rich, the poor, the marginalized, people from all walks of life. And he was always compassionate toward those men and women. But when it came to the religious community, to the law-keeping experts, uh, whose public image was one thing, but whose private lives were another, Jesus had little patience. Now understand, the religious experts in Jesus' day, first century Israel, they had a very high opinion of themselves. And uh, they went around, they dressed in elegant styles, they, they ate rich foods, they were clean and well-groomed, they always looked good uh, in, in their outward appearance, they were always busy with their religious activities, they made themselves known out in public, presenting this air of self-righteousness and superiority ab above everybody else. Why? Because somewhere along the line, the religious community came to believe that God's impressed with all the superficial stuff. And what Jesus is telling us here is it's not true. And the, the, you know, the arrogant, pretentious, judgmental, inauthentic lives of religious, rigid individuals, Jesus couldn't stand. Which is why he spent more time in the marketplace than he did in the, in the temple. But interestingly enough, the next time we see Jesus using this term pure was in the temple, describing what the religious experts were not. They were not pure in heart. They were not authentic. They were not sincere. They were not genuine, not by any stretch of the imagination. 
In fact, later on in his biography, Matthew records Jesus' criticism of these religious leaders and it takes up an entire chapter, chapter 23. Six times Jesus calls them hypocrites. You know, those who looked religiously good on the outside but were duplicit and uh, impure on the inside. And Jesus, Jesus says, they do not practice what they preach. You know, everything they do is done for, sh- for people to see. It's all done for show. You see, Jesus always called people, religious or irreligious, he always called people to genuine faith and authentic spirituality, always. And recognizing that is, is critical to interpreting, interpreting the phrase pure in heart because based on the term, based on the context, the crowd, and Jesus' contempt for hypocrisy, here's my Ray K translation. He, Jesus said, blessed are those who are the real deal. Happy are those men, men and women who have a genuine faith in God a faith that gets revealed to the world around them through authentic spiritual living. I mean, in a sense, Jesus was saying, look, there aren't any phonies in the kingdom of heaven. But what's true in heaven is not necessarily what's true on earth, is it? Because the fact is, today in America, there are a lot of people who file into church auditoriums every week claiming to be followers of Jesus, who put up a good front, say the right things, keep piously busy with religious activities, but their hearts are less than genuine. And as we've already agreed, the heart matters. It matters to God. And it also matters to the world around us. Because like never before in our history, our nation's history and existence, American culture, although predominantly secular in practice, maintains a hunger for spirituality, for truth and for meaning. People are legitimately searching for and, and, and clamoring for spiritual authenticity. You know, they're tired of all the talk. They're searching for, for faith that makes a difference. They're looking for the real deal. As I look at you, as I look at me, as I look at the Christian church, what do they see? I mean, really, what do they see? Do they see genuine faith lived out every day through our humility, our honesty, our generosity, our forgiveness, our grace, our mercy? Or, you know, they see pure hearts. Or do they get a sense that we're all faking it? You know, we're just, we're a bunch of phonies. We say one thing, but live another. You know, when I was a kid, we never... I can't say never. We didn't have any kind of spiritual element in our family growing up, except when every now and then my parents would get what I refer to now as a kind of a religious itch. And all of a sudden, out of the blue on a Sunday morning, okay, we're going to church today. We're like, going where? What's that again? You know? And to get us in the car, and we're all cranky, and we didn't want to go there. You know, my brother and I, we didn't, we didn't want to go to church. And so we're in the backseat, and mom and dad are in the front, and they're yelling at us, and they're taking swings at us, and we're ducking and weaving, you know, and, and it's not a good scene. And we get, we get to the church parking lot, and we pull in, and we walk in the building, and all of a sudden, oh, you know, they're walking in like, like mm, you know, and I'm looking at my parents saying, who are these people? What's happening here? And we do the whole, the whole thing, sing the hymns, you know, good to see the pastor on the way out the door. Good sermon, pastor, good sermon, pastor. You know, and I just want to get to the car. We get in the car, everything goes back to normal, you know. And look, there was a serious inconsistency. Serious inconsistency. And, uh, and that was my first exposure to Christianity. I didn't like it. You know, now, 
Granted, I was a goofy kid, but I wasn't stupid. You know, I wasn't stupid. I, 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 could see the, I could see what was happening. And I'm telling parents, side note here, your kids aren't stupid either. I mean, they, they're observant. They can spot a phony. They can spot serious inconsistencies. And they're watching you. And so for me, you know, this whole Christian thing was a joke. This church thing was a joke. I don't want anything to do with it. Until I met a guy who's a Christian guy who... who um, genuinely cared for me as a friend and whose faith seemed legit, it seemed real. And then I began to think to myself, okay, well, maybe this, maybe this Christian thing, maybe there's something to it. Well, you realize, just like I was, just like I am today, most people in America believe in God. You realize over 90% of people in America believe in God. And those who have a spiritual interest are drawn to sincerity, it's true in our day, it was true in Jesus' day, and he knew it. And so it makes sense to me that one of the most important things he'd want for his followers is for us just to be real. That through the liberating power of God's grace, we feel free to be ourselves, to be genuine, to be pure in heart, if you will. And, you know, look, it's, it's no secret. There's a lot of, you know as well as I do, there's a lot of deception in our world today. Pretense abounds in every arena. Politics, business, social media, relationships, even religion. There are a lot of posers out there pretending to be more than they really are. I mean, there are so many phonies walking around our culture that genuine, sincere men, women, and students wind up creating quite a stir just by being themselves. And yet that's what Jesus calls us to. He calls his followers to be, to be genuine, just be authentic. So a couple of questions related to this. Uh, one, are you a follower of Jesus? In other words, have you made a serious personal profession of faith in him? And is that faith, you know, real or, or and genuine or are you just going through religious motions? Or in Jesus' words, have you acknowledged your spiritual poverty before God? There's nothing that you can do to earn your way. And have you mourned over that or mourned over your sin? And has that mourning led to repentance and true meekness? You know, humility before God, humility before others. And has all of that stimulated an increasing desire for God? If so, Jesus says, you're going to be merciful. And you're going to be a genuine person. But here's the second question. How is this genuineness of faith, this, this, this purity of heart expressed? Author and theologian John Stott described it this way. He said, for the pure in heart, their whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and men. Their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure, unmixed with anything devious, ulterior, or base. Hypocrisy and deceit are abhorrent to them. They are without guile. Now that's a really nice, good theological type summary, right? But what does it mean practically? And I'm, not, I'm no John Stott, trust me, but here, I'll give you my Reiki summary of it, okay? Purity of heart, genuine faith is expressed when we get rid of the religious phoniness and just be real with God and with one another. Be ourselves and be sincere. It means having an authentic identity. You know, so often as Christians, we feel compelled for whatever reason, 
for whatever reason, we feel compelled to fit into some man-made, culturally appropriate religious mold or something. You know, we, we, we think we've got to dress a certain style, you know, use certain language, listen to a particular genre of music, hold to certain politics, you know, look the same, talk the same, think the same. It's like we force one another into a, a Stepford spirituality, a cookie-cutter Christianity. That's not God's will for us. That's not God's will for us. One of the greatest mistakes any follower of Jesus can make is to renounce or repress his or her God-given uniqueness in an attempt to look more spiritual or religious. God loves diversity, which is why he designed and created and wired each of us so different, giving us a variety of interests and tastes and passions and talents and gifts. In the kaleidoscope of, of God's family, there's room for fishermen and executives, artists and philosophers, young and old, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, right brain, left brain, black, white, Asian, Indian, and everything in between. Diversity is a wonderful part of the kingdom of God, both now and forevermore, and it should be, in, it should be celebrated always and never repressed. Now, I've been in ministry a long, long time, and I, when I first getting started, when I was in grad school, I, I thought I had a pretty good grasp on, on, on how pastors should look and how should they act and they should, what way they should talk and dress and walk and all of that. And I got to tell you what, man, that became a huge burden to me. That became a huge, because I realized, I realized I'm not going to fit in that mold. That's not me. I, I, what, I, what I had in my brain, that's not me. And I, I was really burdened by that. And finally, I remember at one point having it out with God and saying, I can't do this. I I can't do it. I can't be something I'm not. And it was as if God flicked the switch and the light bulb went on and it was as if he was saying to me, hey, I never asked you to do that. I never suggested you should do that. Be yourself. Don't try to be something or someone you're not. And that's what I've tried to do all these years, like it or not. And... Uh, and here's the, here's the deal. That's God's message to you. It's his message to all of us. He's created each of you for a purpose. He's given you certain tastes and talents and temperaments, experiences that make you unique to the body of Christ and unique to the world. So stop denying your individuality and, just, and be yourself. Be real. Another important aspect of spiritual genuineness has to do with authentic emotions. You know, as you can imagine, I often interact with people who, um, who are in crisis. And I spoke to someone recently diagnosed with cancer uh, a couple weeks ago. And I, I asked them, you know, how are you doing with this? And the person said, not great. I'm really struggling. I'm, you know, I, I know how I'm supposed to deal with it as a Christian, but I, and I'm trying to trust God. But it's hard. It's scary. It's confusing. I'm angry. I could see the pain in their eyes. I could hear it in their voice. And I tell you what, I so appreciated their honesty. They didn't try to cover it up with Christian cliches. They weren't trying to sugarcoat stuff. They weren't denying the pain and the fear. They just, admit the they just admitted the struggle. They admitted what was happening to them and what was going on inside. And what's sad to me is how so many Christians don't feel the freedom to do that. They don't feel free to do that. They've gotten confused on how to honestly express themselves because some well-meaning but misguided friend, pastor, leader, somebody told them that committed Christians never question God, never get angry, or voice sadness, hurt, grief, or fear. Those are signs of shallow faith, weak character, so suck it up. Compare that to Jesus. 
Now, when he, what did he do when his friend Lazarus died? He wept. I mean, he broke down in public and accepted comfort from those around him. And I tell you what, that kind of emotional transparency endeared him to those people. And I get it. You, you may not agree with me on this, and that's fine, but you know what I think the world needs more from us in the church? I think the world needs to hear us admit we don't have all the answers to all the questions. And I think the world needs to see us grapple with, with, with mystery, with fear, with sadness, with, with the complexities of life, with anger, with jealousy, with loss. We all experience those things, right? It's called being human. I think our culture should hear us talk openly about those things. Spiritual seekers need to see us living out our faith without discounting the everyday emotional realities of life, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, so, you know, if you're, if you're here this morning and on the inside you're struggling or you're hurting, hey, don't try to sanitize it, don't Christianize it. Your feelings are real. God gave them to you. They're important. And if, if you address them in a healthy, open fashion, your emotional authenticity will reveal that you're a real person in whom God is at work. Another aspect of authenticity has to do with humility and the willingness to confess our failures to God and to each other. It is so, it is so strange to me how, you know, how we in the church are the first to admit that we're broken and sinful and, and imperfect human beings, but we're also the first to try and hide those imperfections from others and pretend they don't exist. And yet authentic confession is a compelling witness to the transforming power of God's grace in our lives. It stands in direct uh, contrast to the society in which we live where nobody wants to admit wrongdoing of any kind. You know? In our cultural context, we rationalize our shortcomings, we cover our tracks, we hire lawyers to get us off the hook, we refuse to take responsibility, no one wants to own up to anything. But taking seriously the biblical directive of confessing our failures, our sins, to God and to one another, admitting that we're broken openly, man, I tell you what, that's the stuff of genuine spirituality, that's the stuff of genuine Christianity. I'm guessing in some cases, confession causes people in our culture to think, man, it could only be the influence of God himself that would prompt a person to ever say, it's my fault, or I failed, or I'm sorry. In his book, Fool's Talk, author and thinker, apologist Oz Guinness writes about influence, Christian influence in the 21st century culture. And he, he talks about how confession is an important part of it. He says, confession is a key strength of the Christian faith a vital part of countering hypocrisy. In other words, admitting we're not perfect to one another and others. And he's right. He's right. You see, I don't believe our culture, or our world for that matter, is looking for perfect Christians. I don't think that's the case. I think the world is looking for those who are real and who are simply sincere and honest. You know, men and women who have the humility and courage to confess their failures and make them right. They're looking for people of genuine faith. And then finally, this genuineness, I think, is expressed through authentic conviction. Or put another way, people are looking for Christians who live like we really believe what we say we believe. 
Uh, in the New Testament, James writes to the church and he, he puts it this way. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure, there's our word, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He doesn't talk about programs or classes or all these other things. He says, no, no, no. It, 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 this is what God wants is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. All the, what? Here's my Reiki summary. In this twisted, polluted world of ours, authentic faith in God is expressed when we do what's right and what's humble and true and generous and merciful and gracious and godly every day. You know, essentially, James and Jesus are saying the same thing. They're telling us genuine Christ followers will live and act with observable conviction. In other words, purity in heart means we, we don't just love theology, we love God. We don't just care about programs, we care about people. We don't just talk about mercy, we actually get involved in serving others and making a difference. We actually forgive others. We, we don't just criticize and consume, we contribute to a cause greater than ourselves. We don't just admire generosity, we are radically generous with it, no expectations of return. We don't just approve of prayer, we do it. We don't just quote scriptural truth, we actually apply it to our lives and model it. And we don't just come in on Sunday mornings to mouth religious words. We come to celebrate together and to worship together the God who loves us, who has extended grace to us, and we do it with our mind and we do it with our heart. We do it with the rational part of our being, we do it with the emotional part of our humanity. Purity of heart means we don't just sit here and discuss the good news of Jesus. We get out of the building and live his message of grace, loving and serving broken, lost people who are desperate to know God. And that's exactly what we're going to do, we're going to do on the 29th. Everybody does Sunday. We're going to go out all over the area and we're going to serve people. We're going, to, we're going to communicate grace and mercy and God's love in tangible ways. And we're going to try to find out what communities need, like our community to the, to the northeast of us. And we need people to help us to go out and just ask the question, what's going well for you? And how might we be able to help? What do you need? We don't just want to barge into community assuming we know everything. But we want people to know that we care. And so we're going to do all that on, on, on the 29th. And I encourage you to sign up and be part of that. Because let me tell you something. We can sit in this room as a church 52 Sundays a year and we can talk religious talk and we can act all spiritual and we can, and we can go about our, 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 our religious activities and remain completely irrelevant to the community. Completely irrelevant. It's happening in churches all over America. 70% of churches are in decline. They've become irrelevant because they hide out in their walls with their programming and all these, and, and, and while, the, while the culture around us goes to hell in a handbasket. The world is not impressed with passivity. And too often as Christians, we're afraid to live and speak what we believe. We fear it'll alienate us from people. But whether or not they admit it, I'm telling you, most of the time, people will respect and admire Christians whose faith impacts the way they behave. Anything less gets no respect. Love, true love, 
is a compelling apologetic. In short, our culture has little interest in superficial religiosity or empty words. Down deep inside, men, women, students all around us are looking for true spirituality. They're looking for somebody, for anybody to step up, to step out and actually live what they claim to believe, humbly, graciously, compassionately, mercifully, honestly, practically. Why can't that be us? Why shouldn't it be us? Why shouldn't it be you? Make no mistake about it. Heart matters. Heart matters. It matters to God, and it matters to the people around us, to the world around us. It matters. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Happy are those men and women whose genuine faith in me gets expressed to the world around them through authentic spiritual living. And what's the result? Well, well, the pure in heart, Jesus said, the pure in heart, they will see God and live joyfully forever in his presence. How's your heart doing this morning? Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that your words to your people Israel would be ones we don't forget ever. As people who love to look at externals, you tell us very clearly, you don't look at what people look at. You don't look at outward appearances. You look at the heart. The heart matters to you. And I don't know what condition our hearts are in this morning. We're all so different. We've been different places through different experiences this week and facing new challenges tomorrow. So I don't know, but you know where our hearts are and you know what's going on inside them. You know the good, the bad, the ugly. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would you'd give us the courage to see and to admit and confess what's true in our hearts. And I pray that as you begin to do a work in us, that the joy and the grace and the mercy that we've experienced because of you through Jesus would begin to pour out of our lives into the lives of those around us. And that they would point people to Jesus. As we worship you this morning, as we give you our hearts, our minds, as we, as we share our resources with you, and receiving an offering and allowing that act of giving to express our commitment to you and to this mission of bringing the news of grace to our world. Lord, I pray that um, we'd be honest with you today about the conditions of our hearts. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? I want to thank you for being here uh, this morning. You know, the words of that song, particular words of that song have, have <clears throat> touched me this morning. The idea of wake up, wake up, wake up. I believe that's what God is saying to the church in America. Wake up. You've become irrelevant. You know, hanging out in your buildings, having all your classes, 
going about all your religious activities and your hearts are not right. And the culture and the world around you is struggling. They're looking for truth and meaning and hope. And you've become irrelevant. Wake up. And I think that's God's call to his people. And I want to be part of a church that's awake. It's awake in understanding who we are on the inside. God changes us from the inside because of his love and mercy and grace we experience in Jesus. But that, that change has some outward, outward impact to our community and world. Because here's the thing, and I said it before, but I can't, I can't tell you how many times I talk to people who, who this is the first time they've ever heard this. We don't, we don't act out in the world to help people because we're trying to earn God's love and acceptance. We're, that's religion. No, no, no. We, 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 we reach out, we serve, and we love people because God has loved us first. And, 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 and that changes us from the inside out. And then the love and mercy and grace we've experienced, the generosity we've experienced, all that we've experienced because of Jesus begins to pour out of our lives. That's Christianity. It's a massive difference, massive difference in understanding and in a worldview, a massive difference in terms of motivation. And uh, man, I hope you see the difference. Religion will crush you. It'll leave you wanting, but Jesus will never do that. So I want to thank you again for being here. Come back next week. We're going to see what Jesus says next. Uh, maybe you have some questions about it. Maybe you have some questions about this whole Christian thing. Talk to someone you know from Parkview. Let them share their story with you, or you certainly can come down front following this service and talk to our prayer team, okay? In the meantime, let me pray for you, and we'll be dismissed. Now, Lord, I pray that um, as the church leaves the building, as we go out for the rest of the week to live our lives, that we would do so because our hearts have been full today of, of your grace and mercy. And, uh, and so we're, we're free to live our lives in authentic ways uh, before, before people we know and come in contact with. I just pray that would be the case. So give your people the power and the strength, the courage to do that. And in, in so doing, may we point people to Jesus. I ask this in his name, for his sake alone. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.